Happy Sabbath. I love seeing just, I love seeing all of our church members involved um, in the various areas of worship at our church. Um, I want to start with a question this morning. Have you ever asked yourself, what does God think about me? Have you ever asked yourself this? What does God think about me? Have you ever sat down and thought about this question? What does God, how, do, how does God consider me? Like, what are his thoughts about me? Um, before you get too hard on yourself, because a lot of us do live with a lot of guilt and shame, and um, when we think about how God views us, the place we go to is sometimes um, like what we're doing wrong or not doing enough of and how maybe God is unhappy with us or that he's wanting more from us. But this morning, we're going to be looking at God's word because it's actually really, really clear about what God thinks about us. And so, um, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork. You are God's handiwork. When I think of handiwork, I think of my, I think of, um, actually, I think of something that's made by hand um, with great attention to detail. I think about my friend Lani. Um, Lani moved to Salt Lake City, Utah several years ago to become a luthier. Does anyone know what that is? They make something. What do they make? Yes, they can make guitars. She went specifically to a school. Um, she enrolled in a violin-making school. Okay, there's a violin-making school in Salt Lake City. And this, this violin-making school is kind of the violin-making school because it's literally called the Violin-Making School of America. <laughs> and it's where students go to learn how to make violins, violas, and cellos. The climate in Salt Lake City is perfect for shaping wood, and students go and learn all aspects of making a violin from how to cut down a tree from the nearby forest to shaping and to shaping and carving um, a violin from the wood that they have cut down um, and they've cured and they've let dry. Um, they also take violin lessons so that they know um, how their instruments are developing. And it's just, it takes immense detail. It takes crazy concentration, care, work, and over 250 hours to make a single violin. Handiwork. There's a restaurant in LA that I frequented since my days of being a youth pastor at LAC. This was a long time ago. Um, and one of the reasons why I love this place so much is because of the immense attention to detail that the owner puts into all of her culinary creations. This is what the drinks look like at this place. Oh no, that's not what the drinks look like. <laughs> um, imagine, this is, I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine that you go to order a drink and fairies go into the forest and collect the prettiest flowers and then they make the drink for you, okay? That's what her drinks look like. Such thoughtful care and precision. 
every detail placed with love. Such handiwork. And you, God's word says, you are God's handiwork. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, this is your time to do whatever you want to do. And so as we open scripture, may you help us to open our hearts and our minds and our ears to you. Um, Father, this is such an important message. Um, May you convict not just the hearts in this room, but convict my heart, convict all of us, that we may know the truth of what it means um, to give you glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Greek word that Paul uses um, that is translated into handiwork in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, is the word poema. Okay? You are God's poema. Does this word sound familiar to you at all? What English word does it remind you of? Poem. Okay, very good. Literally, you are... God's poem. You are his poetry. Okay? That's like kind of nice. Like, oh, thanks. Okay? But there's only one other place in scripture where you find this word poema. And that's in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 where Paul says, all of creation is God's poema. This is a picture of the Milky Way. Okay? Um, The galaxy. And astronomers aren't actually sure how many galaxies are in our universe, right? At this time, um, the range is anywhere from 100 billion galaxies to 2 trillion galaxies. And these same astronomers, they believe that there are more stars in our universe than there are number of grains of sand on our planet. It's like very hard for me to fathom this. But it appears, according to scripture, that there are two forms of poetry that God uses to express himself. Number one, creation, the universe, and the other form of God's poetry is you. You have more meaning and purpose in your design than you could even possibly begin to understand. When we think about poetry, I don't know how many of you guys like identify as a poet. I don't know how many of you guys like wrote a poem yesterday for your significant other. But even if you do not write poetry, even if you've never written a poem in your life, what we can agree upon is that poetry is used as an attempt to capture beauty, to capture just the deep, deep feelings that you have inside of you. It is used to express deep emotion, and it is something that comes from the heart. And so I just need to say it again. You are God's poetry. And maybe you're like, not me. Like, maybe Pastor Richard. Yeah, yeah, Pastor Richard, he is God's poetry. Maybe, oh, the people that sing for praise, like the cellist, They are God's poetry. Wow. Some of us, we live under such guilt, such shame, that we do not see ourselves clearly. Um, Some of us, we buy into so many of the lies that the enemy tells us that we refuse to believe the truth as God speaks it into our lives. It actually reminds me of one of my favorite childhood movies. Um, 
the best old school Disney movie is what? Huh? You're right. It is The Lion King. Okay. So, and I'm not talking about like the freaky live action one where the animals have human eyes. We're talking about the original animated Lion King. Has anyone not watched The Lion King? Okay, good, because I'm going to spoil it for you right now. Um, In the movie, the point of the movie where everything changes for young Simba is when his dad is killed, a.k.a. murdered, okay, while trying to save him from the wildebeest stampede. And then his treacherous uncle comes to Simba, and he makes Simba believe that Simba is the cause of his father's death. Even though we know, the audience knows that actually Scar, like, murdered Mufasa. And what Scar says to Simba is, he comes upon him and Simba's, like, trying to, like, you know, that, like, very, like, <sighs> so Mufasa's laying on, in the dirt and then Simba's, like, trying to wake him up and then Scar appears and then Scar says to him, Simba, what have you done? Right? And Simba's like, it, it was an accident. He was trying to save. And, and Scar's like, no one ever means for these things to happen. But the king is dead. And if it weren't for you, he would still be alive. Oh, what will your mother think? And then he has only one piece of advice for his nephew. Run away. Run away and never return. And because of this immense guilt and immense shame that Simba feels, he does run away. And he completely gives up his identity as the next king of Pride Rock. He gets adopted by a warthog and a meerkat, and he starts living by a new motto, and he eats bugs, and he decides not to worry about anything in life because things happen and you can't do anything about them. So it's better to not worry. Guilt is there to motivate us in our life. But shame is different. Shame buries you. There is a huge difference between I did wrong and who I am, I am wrong. And Jesus took all of your wrongs onto the cross and turned you into something completely different. Because consider the rest of the verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, we are created in Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean that we are created in Christ? In John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus approaches Jesus in the dark of the night. And Nicodemus is like, we know that you're from God. This is a guy who, despite how educated he was, what his status was in the community, um, he was open-minded. He was open-hearted, which I really think is the best way for anyone to approach or interact with Jesus. And the thing is, Nicodemus, he has a lot to lose right now. He was a religious elite. He was a religious zealot. And he comes to Jesus at night, we assume probably because he doesn't want to be seen by his peers, but he cannot deny the reality of what he's seen come from Jesus. The healings, the compassion, the signs, the wonders, the immense love, the multiplying of food, the commanding of nature. And he says to Jesus, We know you come from God because all the supernatural stuff that you're doing, it can only come from a supernatural God. And Jesus responds in a really interesting way. Jesus is like, yeah, um, no one can see the kingdom of God until he's born again. 
And this is what Paul is describing when he says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ. There is a rebirth that happens, something new. And Nicodemus is like, wait, what? Like, what do you mean born again? Because he's thinking about the physical. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about spiritual birth. And Paul describes it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. You are a new creation, a completely new creature. And Paul is saying the old things have passed away, the new is here. Scripture tells us that there are only two types of families, the family of God and the family of Satan. And Jesus is on a rescue mission to remove us from one family, the family we've all been born into, to transfer us to become the adopted children of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul writes, We were by nature children of wrath. This means that God is just. This means that God cannot turn a blind eye. And when he looks at fallen mankind, it doesn't sit right with him. And I don't know if that idea of God makes you uncomfortable, but here's why this is good news, besides the fact that it's the truth. We want a God who is angry. Let me me explain. We want a God who is angry, and upset at all the injustices and all the abuses and all the evil in this world. We don't want a God who's complacent with what's going on and like, eh, things happen. But the problem is we fit into that category, and that's a big problem for us. And that's where we will remain unless Jesus does what he desires to do, his work to rescue us and to transfer us and bring us into a new family. And the question we are here to answer this morning at this point in our Rooted series is, how can I make the most of my life? How can I make the most of my life? And here's the answer. You are here this morning to bring glory to God. It's as simple as that. When Paul wrote that you are God's poetry, that you are God's workmanship, He also writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You guys can find it for me. He writes that you are God's workmanship, but that we were also created for a purpose. And this verse tells us what that purpose is. It says to do good works. If I were to ask you, why did God save you? How would you answer? I think most people would say, oh, God saved me because he loves me and he wants me to be with him in heaven forever. And yes, you are correct. But if you think that's where it ends, you are sorely mistaken because God saved you for a purpose on this earth and the purpose is to do good works. It's really very simple. So what do good works look like? Paul goes on to say that God prepared them in advance for us to do, which is really cool because what that means is you were created for good works and those good works were prepared specifically for you. So here's how you identify good works. Number one, good works are always a blessing to other people. Philippians chapter two, verse three and four. 
It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Good works are always a blessing to other people. Number two, good works help us to be more like Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him, being Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Number three, good works always bring glory to God. Matthew 5, 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now this morning I've mentioned giving God glory or God receiving glory several times, but I want to break it down a little bit. What does it mean to give God glory? I think a lot of times the context that we use it in, um, we think that it means to give God props, like to give God credit. So something amazing at church happens and then we're like, oh, like glory to God. Like someone, um, I don't know, people get baptized and then everyone's like, wow, glory to God. Or, you know, the pastor preaches a like solid sermon and then someone says to them like, wow, that was a really great sermon. And then the pastor responds, glory to God. But what does it mean to give God glory? The Hebrew word that is translated into the English word glory it means character, okay? Remember in the Old Testament when Moses is like, God, I really, like, I just want to, you know, we've been hanging out for a really long time, and I want to know what you look like. I want to see you face to face. God, reveal yourself to me. I want to look at you with my own eyes. And God's like, Moses, you cannot handle looking at me face to face, but let's compromise. If you go and you stand in that crack in that mountain, I'm going to pass by and I'll cover you with my hand. And then once I've passed by, then you can get a glimpse of my back. And this is the compromise they strike. And when God does this, what scripture says that is God's presence pass by. And then it's just a list of the qualities of who God is. Compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Glory, God's glory is God's character. So when you do good works for those around you, what happens is they get to turn and see a glimpse of God passing by them. You become a window, a portal, where his presence comes and is revealed. His goodness, his compassion, his graciousness, his true character, how his love and faithfulness abound, how forgiving he is, how understanding he is. And you get to do that. You get to be a part of revealing God's character, not just to like the general, like, oh, to the world, but you get to reveal God's true character to your friends to your classmates, to your siblings, to your children, to your parents. This is like a crazy, crazy privilege. You get to show God's glory, his character, every time you engage in good works. And number four is good works are motivated by our love for others. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 says, 
for you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. There's a story about a woman who was married to a very demanding man. Extremely hard to please, very, very set in his ways. And every day before he left for work, he would leave her with a list of things that she needed to take care of before he got home. And if she didn't get those things done, it would not be good news for her. So every day she would frantically and anxiously try to get through all the things on her list. One day, she gets a phone call, someone from the hospital, and they tell her, ma'am, we regret to inform you, but your, son, but your husband, he had a sudden heart attack at work, and we were unable to save him. And she has, like, incredibly mixed feelings inside, but, you know, time goes on, she grieves, and several years pass, and she meets a, a different man, a very different man, He is kind, he is patient, he's compassionate, and he's sympathetic. And before he leaves for work every morning, instead of leaving her with a list, he leaves her with a kiss. Sometime, a few years into their marriage, she's in their bedroom tidying up, and she notices a piece of paper that's been wedged behind their nightstand. And she kind of pulls it out, and she immediately recognizes the handwriting. It's one of her first husband's lists of things that she needs to take care of. And as she sits there reading through that list, she starts weeping. And her tears are actually tears of joy because it hits her that all these things on this list that she needed to accomplish, she actually still does all these things. But her motivation is completely different. She doesn't have to be asked. She doesn't have to be threatened. She's not doing it out of fear, but she does it all in love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. We love because he first loved us. Love takes the initiative. Love is the motivating factor behind it all. Not guilt, not shame, not fear, but love. But it's difficult to step into that area of being motivated by love if you do not realize that you are God's poem, that you are loved first, that you are God's attention to detail. And this, just like every other facet of our Christian walks, our good deeds, our good works, they are developed through practice. No one's just naturally really excellent at doing good deeds. It's a lifestyle and a habit that you practice and cultivate like any other good and healthy habit in your life. And that's why our church community wants to help provide opportunities for you to practice. Like today, right after service ends, instead of going to the fellowship hall and eating potluck here at church, we invite you, we encourage you, we challenge you to join us for our homeless outreach today. We'll be carpooling together to a homeless encampment in Riverside. And all the different ministries of our church have prepared different parts of the meal, um, grilled cheese sandwiches by the young adults and our youth and the hot tomato soup by our campus ministry and the fruit by our family ministries. And together, we're going to go to this homeless encampment and we're going to serve the community and then we're going to fellowship and break bread with them and then pray for whoever is wanting or needing prayer in their lives. 
Isn't it time to stop attending church and start being the church? I hope that we will leave the sanctuary today feeling inspired, feeling inspired at the truth that you are God's poem, but I hope that you also feel challenged too to do good works because you are God's poem, not because you're saved by your works, but because you've been saved for them. Jesus says, you know, you want to find your life? Then lose it. Stop chasing after it. Give it away in service to others, and in doing so, it will come back to you. For so many of us, we come here Sabbath after Sabbath, and maybe there are Sabbaths where we're more inspired than others, but then we leave, and oftentimes we forget to be obedient to that inspiration that we felt. And we forget what God thinks about us. We forget why we're here. We forget that we are his poetry, his beautiful objects, hand-created with precision, with immense concentration and care for detail. So created for his beautiful purpose so that ultimately we can enjoy his beauty forever. I mentioned The Lion King and how Simba's shame and guilt made him run away from his past and embrace a new life of no worries. But as you guys know, the story doesn't end there. One day, Simba's hanging out with his friends, Pumbaa and Timon, and his best friends, they almost get eaten by another lion, a ferocious lion, a female lion. Uh, Oh my goodness, it's his childhood best friend, a.k.a. his first love, Nala. And they're so excited to see each other. And then they're just like catching up. Like, where have you been? We thought you were dead. And, And then they're like, you know, catching up. And then the sun starts to set. And then they have that very magical, can you feel the love tonight night, right? But then they also have their first fight as a couple. When Nala tells Simba, like, hey, you need to return home and help our community. And Simba's like, no, sorry, I can't go back. And she's like, don't you understand? I left to find help, and I found you, and you are our only hope. And he's, he's like, no. He refuses to go. And then she says, what's happened to you? You're not the Simba that I remember. And then he's like, you're right, I'm not. Are you satisfied? And then she says, no, just disappointed. Yikes. Okay. And then Simba's like, you know what? You're starting to sound like my father. And then, oh, Nala, wow. She says, good, at least one of us does. I know. And then Nala leaves, okay? She's frustrated, he's frustrated, she's hurt, he's hurt. And so Simba's like pacing, he's like, he's like, oh, I've never like Like, I've never loved and fought before. Like, he's like, oh. And then someone appears, Rafiki, the baboon. And he's, like, kind of pestering Simba, and Simba's trying to get rid of him until Rafiki says something significant. He says that he knows who Simba is. Simba's like, you you know me? And he's like, yeah, you're Mufasa's boy. And Simba's like, wait. You knew my father? And Rafiki's like, correction. (laughs) 
He's like, I know your father. And Simba's like, I hate to tell you this, but my father died a long time ago. And Rafiki is like, sorry, this is not going to match the music, but this is what Rafiki says. <laughs> Rafiki's like, wrong again, right? He's like, he's alive, and I'll show him to you. And then Rafiki takes off. And Simba is like, what? And so Simba is chasing him through the African plains. And then they get to this clearing, and Rafiki's like, he's down there. And Simba is like freaking out, and he gets closer and closer to look. But it's just a pond. And he says disappointedly, that's not my father, that's just my reflection. And then Rafiki says, look harder (laughs) and then he touches that pond and then the ripples start going you guys all know this iconic scene and then the clouds start rolling in with the thunder and it's Mufasa in the clouds and Mufasa says this to Simba he says Simba you have forgotten me and Simba's like no how could I And Mufasa says, you have forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. He says to him, remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Remember who you are. Knowing who you are in relationship to God changes everything. Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten that you are a son, a daughter of God? Have you forgotten that you are a poem? You are a masterpiece of the creator. Maybe you never knew. Maybe no one's ever told you that before. But now that you know, now that the truth has been revealed to you in the word, embrace it, engage in it. And then practice the purpose in which you have been created in Christ, which is to do good deeds. Not because you're saved by them, but because you have been saved for them. Because you have the great opportunity, the immense privilege to be a window for someone to see the true character of our Heavenly Father. You guys know that in our current culture, God is so misrepresented. He is so misunderstood. He gets blamed for so much stuff that is not his fault. You have the opportunity by your good deeds to show his true essence, who he is to the people that you engage with. Be a window. Let's pray. Gracious Father, how can you trust us with this kind of responsibility? What if we don't do good deeds and what if we don't show people who you are? But then again, 